As you're being seated, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 this morning. Uh, every once in a while, I come across a picture that is actually worth a thousand words. Found one of those this week. Uh, can, you just, can you imagine if you were driving down the road and uh, right as you're about to pass through this road, boom, there it is. Uh, that'd be a little startling, right? You'd have to deal with this situation. Can't go over, can't go around if you want to get to your destination. Spiritually speaking, every single one of us has an enormous boulder in the roadway of our lives, and his name is Jesus Christ. You can't go around him. You have to deal with Jesus Christ. He is the most important person in human history. He is the most important person in your life. How have you responded to Jesus Christ? In 1 Peter chapter 2 Verses 4 through 10, Peter is going to lift up Christ and he's going to present him before us and remind us that every person must address Jesus Christ. I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 4. He writes, In coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says the most appropriate and natural response for a human being is to worship Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is seen as he is, the most appropriate response is to fall down and worship at his feet. Peter is building here upon the previous section that we studied last week in which he he laid out um, this idea of how we grow up into our salvation. And remember, for Peter, when he talks about salvation, he isn't thinking primarily just about the forgiveness of our sins and entering into heaven someday. What he's talking about is the glory of seeing Jesus Christ face to face and having lived our lives identified with Christ on this earth As we see him face to face, we will share in that glory and living for that day, that inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And Peter has said, the way that we begin to grow up into that is that we drink deeply of the word of God, the pure milk of the word of God, which constantly reminds us to live today for that day. And as we're doing so, it transforms the nature of our relationships to one another we're commanded and we are compelled and we learn how to love one another sincerely, genuinely from the heart. Peter continues that theme and he's, what he's going to say to us today is that we continue that process of growing up into our salvation through two fundamental activities for the church, which are worship and witness. A worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ, his son, and then going out and proclaiming his excellencies to all nations. So notice how he begins here in verse 4. He says, and coming to him. That phrase, and coming to him, is an allusion to the priesthood in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it frequently talks about the priest coming to him. That is, entering into the presence of God to perform their priestly duties, to to, to, uh, offer sacrifices and serve the Lord. The writer of Hebrews picks up this same terminology and talks about coming to him, that is, coming to him in worship. Now, hopefully you've had a chance to sit down and read the whole book of 1 Peter, one sitting. If you haven't, 
there's your assignment for the week. Okay? I want you to sit down. It'll take you maybe five minutes. Because I want you to get the, the flow of thought. I want you to see how Peter is developing his argument. And as you sit down and read through it one sitting, one of the things you're going to notice is that over and over and over again, Peter makes Old Testament quotations. And what he's doing is he's taking Old Testament ideas that were applied to the nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, and he's applying those to the church. He's not saying that the church has replaced Israel. God still has covenant promises that must be fulfilled. But what he's saying is how God worked in the people of God in the past is how God is now working with his people today. And so he applies these concepts to the people of God, to the church. He also applies concepts that were directed toward God the Father in the Old Testament and applies them to Jesus Christ because now we know that God is a triune God. And if you want to worship the Father, you must worship through the Son. And when you worship the Son, you are worshiping the Father. And so in chapter 2, Peter's going to paint for us this, this really beautiful multifaceted picture of the object of our worship, Jesus Christ. And he's going to use several descriptive terms that come from the Old Testament. The first is that Jesus Christ is a living stone. And obviously he's making a, a contrast here between the dead stones of the literal temple and the living stone, which is Jesus Christ. He's also drawing on this rich imagery of God as a rock that is painted throughout the Old Testament. And he picks a particular word here. Remember in, in, in Greek, there, it's a really rich language. And so frequently there are multiple words from which an author could choose. And he picks one particular word for stone here, which means not the kind of stone that you would just stumble across in a field, but a cut stone, okay? a shaped stone, okay? the ideal stone upon which a building can be built. And Jesus Christ is that perfect cut stone. I want us to pick up the imagery where it began, all the way back in Genesis chapter 49. So hold your place here in 1 Peter. We'll be back there in just a moment and turn to Genesis chapter 49, verse 22. In Genesis 49, you recall, we're at the end of Jacob's life. And so Jacob is on his deathbed and he's blessing his sons. In chapter 49, verse 22, he's blessing Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. Uh, Joseph has been blessed. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. That is his brothers, right? But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And from this point on, this, this imagery of God as a rock or as a stone is frequent. You notice it again if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1. Moses wrote a song and he wanted all of Israel to memorize the song so that they could rehearse it and learn about the nature of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. He says, give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. That is, I proclaim the character, the personality, the attributes. Who is God? What is he like? Ascribe greatness to our God. That is, praise him, the rock. 
His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God is, he is a rock. He is solid. He is secure. He is unchanging. If you are in danger, hide underneath him. He will protect you. God is a rock. He is stable. He is secure. He is the foundation stone. If you want to build your life and have it last, build upon God. If you build upon anything else, your life will be wiped away. It will not last. You want a real, true, rich, satisfying, fulfilling life, build on the rock, which is God. Well, Peter picks up on this imagery. Uh, specifically, he's drawing from the book of Isaiah. I want you to turn there with me now to Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 14. The, the setting in Isaiah is this. The nation of Israel has been divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is called Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. Judah is being harassed by surrounding nations from time to time. And they're frequently tempted to go and make foreign alliances to protect themselves rather than trust in God. And they are tempted to worship false gods, other gods, cover their bases instead of trusting in God alone. And so God sends Isaiah to deliver a message to them, to rebuke them. Chapter 28, verse 14. It says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. That is, he's directing it specifically to the leaders of the nation. Those who are making decisions on behalf of the people. So because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made a pact that is probably a reference to their idolatry. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. That is, uh, surrounding armies will not harm us because we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, For the foundation, firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. That you can try to do all the building that you want to build, but when I send the enemy, he will wipe you out. You can make all kinds of alliances that you want to make with the most powerful nations around you, but when I choose to act, you will be wiped out. And because Israel continued to disobey and disobey and disobey and not trust in God, the rock, God did exile his people. But then he said, after your exile, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come in and I'm going to relay the stone. I'm going to set a new foundation. And on this foundation, I will build my kingdom. And all who build their lives upon this foundation, their lives will last. We know now Jesus Christ is the precious stone chosen by God. He's a living stone. And Peter goes on and he says, he's not just a living stone, but he's a stone who was rejected. He rejected by the leadership. And this has been the pattern. Specifically, this passage that Peter quotes was alluding to the ultimate rejection of God's cornerstone, Jesus Christ as Messiah. God sent his son and the leaders of the nation said, no, we will not have this man to rule over us. Remember, the Gospels give us a little insight into it, that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the people were jealous of Jesus. They didn't want him to be the cornerstone. They wanted to build their own kingdom. And so they said, we have to 
we have to get rid of this man. Otherwise, the Romans will come and take away what little power we have. Remember, they were, they were already under oppression. They were not free people, but they had a little bit of authority. And they said, we'd rather keep our little kingdom than allow God to establish his kingdom. And even we as believers in Jesus Christ who've said, yes, God, I believe Jesus died for my sins. We're frequently tempted to cling to our little kingdoms. Rather than allow ourselves to be humbled before God and say, I will build all of life on Jesus Christ. And this is the pattern of humanity. From the moment that the fall happened, we we are born preferring to say no than to say yes. It starts with children saying no to their parents, and then we say no to teachers, and then we say no to employers. We want to say no until life crushes us. The stone, which is the cut stone, the perfect stone, is the stone which everyone seems to reject. And yet he says, it is chosen by God, it's choice. This is the one stone that God has selected. Build your life on it. These people to whom Peter writes, if you want to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, you recall that, that they have received Jesus. Okay? Uh, he uses the imagery of Psalm 34 throughout this book. He talks about uh, tasting that the Lord is good. You have tasted because you believed. You obeyed the gospel. You believed that Jesus Christ was the one who could remove your sins. And because you believed in him, you chose to identify with him. And what happened in your lives? Well, you were, you were rejected by those around you. You suffered loss of property. Some probably suffered loss of physical health and life. And you suffered with him. And so he begins the book by reminding him that you are chosen by God. The world may reject you because it rejected Jesus Christ. And if you've identified with Christ, you're going to be rejected. But I have chosen you just like I chose Jesus Christ. He is the stone which the builders rejected, but he's choice. And then he also says he's precious in the sight of God. That word there means uh, esteemed, highly honored, of great value. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Peter writes, this precious value then is for you who believe. Same word, same root. This precious value, this honor is for you who believe. You share in it when you identify with Jesus Christ. This is the precious stone, the choice stone, the cornerstone. Verse 6, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. The one who believes in him will not be disappointed. The cornerstone is the most important stone. It's the stone that's laid first. It's the stone that lays the pattern for the building. And God says, Jesus Christ, he's the cornerstone. And he's the one that I have put in place. And I have chosen no other. There is no other way to build your life, but other than the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no other way to build your life. There is no other one who is the object of our worship, but Jesus Christ. And when we worship Jesus Christ, we are transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And when we build all of life around Christ, we become like him. That is true. No matter what you worship, you will become like the object of your worship. No matter what you set your affections on and love and devote yourself to, you will become like that thing. If you worship what is base, if you love what is base, or what is merely earthly, you will become like that. 
If you allow God to exalt your vision and you worship Jesus Christ and him alone, you become like Jesus Christ. And notice that's the second part of the the idea that Peter is developing here. Look with me again, verse 4. It says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And you also, when you come to him as to the living stone, you also are being built up as living stones. You're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. From the moment that the fall occurred, God began this process of regathering worshipers to himself. That's what the storyline of the Bible is about. God restoring the image of God in man. God created us in his image so that we could be in in a personal relationship with him, in an intimate relationship with him. It's a privilege that no other creature can enjoy because we, we are personal and he is personal. We can love and enjoy God. Because we're made in his image, we can become like him and we can reflect and radiate his character, his personality, his attributes. Because we are like him and we make real decisions with real consequences, we can represent him on the earth. We can rule and reign on his behalf. We can take his reputation and spread it throughout all of the earth. And so God has been in the process of moving history toward the restoration of his image in mankind. That's God's purpose in the world. And so Peter turns now from this imagery of Jesus Christ to the imagery of what Jesus Christ is building. Look with me again, verse 5. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Three images he draws on here. First, God is building a temple. But again, it's with living stones. It's not a physical building, but it's a building made with people. Paul develops this thought even more thoroughly. If you want to keep your place here in 1 Peter and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians is Paul's great exposition about the nature of the church and the work of the church in the world, the purpose of the church. In chapter 2, he talks about this mystery That previously Jews and Gentiles had been separated. God had intended that he would work through the Jewish nation and bring light to the Gentiles, but the Jews failed in that mission. And so they were set aside, and now God is working directly with and to and through all nations. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. It says, So then, you, you Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, you are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is the teachings of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Isn't that that beautiful imagery? When we hear about uh, the temple of God in the New Testament, frequently we, we think about just ourselves, don't we? I am the temple of God, which is true. First Corinthians chapter six, Paul says, you individually are the dwelling place of God. His spirit dwells in you, but he 
expands that idea in chapter 2 of Ephesians and says, even more importantly, we are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you individually, but the Spirit of God dwells in a particular way when we are together. Not just when we're together at a setting like this and singing praises and worshiping, but when we're together in our homes and we're sharing a meal. When we're in conflict with one another and yet loving one another and forgiving one another and being like God to one another. That is the temple of God. And every member of the temple of God is a stone or a brick which is necessary. And if you are not deeply engaged and plugged into the lives of other believers in Jesus Christ, the temple is lacking. We know what the completion will look like. We're given a glimpse of it in Revelation when men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are all gathered around the throne and they're worshiping together and there is no more barrier. There is no more division based on any artificial distinctions because what is most important about us is that we're worshipers of God through Jesus Christ. And so that is what the church labors for today while we're on the earth. It says you are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. And the only thing that ultimately will bring healing to this earth, all the war, all the racism, all the prejudice, all the separation, all the enmity, all the fighting, is unity through Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing about us. He is that huge boulder in the roadway of life. You must deal with Jesus. Says you are the temple of God. Second imagery, he says you're also a, a family. Okay, he's gathering a family. Now, the language that he chooses to use here, it's, it's intentionally kind of ambiguous. When he talks about a house, in Old Testament terminology, a house was the family. Right? So God is building a house for Jacob. It doesn't mean four walls and a roof. It means a family. It means descendants. So this spiritual house, this place of worship, is, it's a family. It's living stones. It's not literal stones. Third, he's consecrating a priesthood. He says, you are the temple. You are a holy priesthood. That is, a priesthood set apart. What did the priests do in the Old Testament? Well, essentially, they were professional worshipers, right? They got paid to pray. They got paid to offer up prayers on behalf of the people. They got paid to sing praises and teach the people to sing praises. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people and then the people would bring them sacrifices to atone for their sins and they would make that offering on behalf of the people. The people couldn't approach, so the priests would approach on their behalf. They were this intermediary, professional worshipers. You are now the priesthood. And you don't have to bring a literal animal sacrifice because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all sin. So what does worship look like for the church? Again, I want you to keep your place in 1 Peter and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. The writer has been developing this whole idea of of a better worship that comes through Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse 15, he reaches this point. He says, through him then, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. 
that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. This is worship. Right? This is worship. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Let us privately, individually, and then corporately gather together and let us praise God. Let us call out to God and say, God, you are great because you are holy. You are completely different. You are powerful. You have created from nothing. You are absolutely pure. You are just. You always do what is right. You are kind and compassionate. You are loyal in your love. God, you are true. You are right. Everything is perfect about you. And we sing out these praises and declare these praises. God, we know who you are. This is who you are. That's the fruit of our lips. That is, that is the offering. That is worship. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We sing out praises to God for who he is, and then we also call out thanksgiving, prayers of thanks. God, thank you for all that you've done in my life. Thank you for Jesus removing the debt of my sin. Thank you for giving me breath so I could be here today and I could sing your praises. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanksgiving. I'm I'm trying to teach our, our family, children particularly, how to be thankful uh, so I lecture him on thankfulness once in a while, you know. <laughs> That's how you teach that lesson really effectively. Uh, so the other day I was, I was um, driving home, I was in the car, and I, I heard a little thing on the, on the news, and it wasn't a Christian deal, it was just a study that was done on thankfulness. And it was talking about the fact that people who keep a gratitude journal, that is every day they pull out a journal and they write down one or two things that they're thankful for, that these people actually live healthier lives. They go to the doctor less. They have less sickness, less disease, less depression. They do better in school. Listen up, students. It's a nice little bonus for Sunday morning. God knows what's best for us. And what's best for us is to sing his praises and declare how great he is and to know his attributes and his personality. What's best for us is to give thanks It's good for us mentally, spiritually, psychologically. It's good for us physically. It's good in every way. And so he has programmed, this is worship for you. Notice the writer goes on. He says, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is worship when we do good for one another and we share. We take not just from our abundance, but sometimes even from our poverty and we give and we share and we sacrifice for one another. All this is worship. All of this is worship for the church. Because God has designed that all of life would be subsumed as worship for us. Remember last week we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Remember last week we said that that word is literally logical. It's appropriate. It's right. It is the only reasonable response for all of mankind to give all, to give absolutely all. Now, a few years ago, I, I met a young man who was, he was, Pretty insecure. He didn't belong anywhere. He was not an Aggie. Okay, I'm not talking about Aggies and the Aggies in particular. I'm not. Okay, he was not an Aggie, but a really insecure guy. Uh, didn't belong anywhere. 
And so he joined this club. It was a civic service organization. And about a week after he joined the club, he got this huge tattoo for the organization on his shoulder. Covered his whole shoulder. And, you know, I mean, the leaders of the organization, that, they were appreciative of that. Wow, he's really, really devoted. But even they were a little bit surprised because they understood that their organization wasn't really that important. Okay, which is another, here's a little bonus for all of us. If you're going to get a tattoo, it should be really important to you. Because you're going to have it for a long time. I don't think this guy even belongs to the club anymore, but he's got the mark, right? Becoming a Christian is not like joining a club. Becoming a Christian is, is entering into Jesus Christ and Christ entering into you and learning to order all of life around Christ. That is normal Christianity. Christ is the center of life. He's the reason for life. He is life. Christ who is our life. That is worship. J.I. Packer put it like this. He said, this then is worship in its largest sense. Petition, that is asking for things as well as praise, declaring God's attributes. Preaching as well as prayer. Hearing as well as speaking. Actions as well as words. Obeying as well as offering. Loving people as well as loving God. It is all that you do when you do it for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. As William Templeton said, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. It is absolutely all of life. That's worship. That is seeing the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and saying, all of my life will be built upon him. But not everyone can accept this. I want you to turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. It says, This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And unto this, they were also appointed. And when we come to him and we build our lives upon him, we are changed by him. The object of the, our worship determines who we become. But not everyone can accept building life upon Christ. And if that's the case, they will trip and fall and stumble over Christ and life will be broken. And again, he draws from this Old Testament imagery of God being a rock. This is from Isaiah chapter 8. It says, those who choose to disbelieve when they approach Christ, they stumble and fall. It's the opposite of honor. They trip and they fall face into the ground and they are humiliated. They bump into a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, a scandal on. They are caused to sin because they reject Jesus Christ. Now, is Peter saying that God has made some people just so that he can destroy them? No, that's not what Peter's talking about. In my translation, I've got New American Standard. It says, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and unto this doom they were also appointed. And in my translation, doom is in italics, which means it's not really there. But the translators couldn't exactly figure out what he meant, so they inserted it. 
Peter is not saying God made these people just so that he could destroy them. What Peter is saying is this. God has predetermined that any man or any woman's response to his son will determine their ultimate destiny. That God has placed one stone in the road. Jesus is the fork in the road. And God has predetermined that your response to him will determine your destiny. If you believe, you will have life forever. And if you choose to disbelieve, you will trip and fall and you have life forever separated from God. And so you must make a wise choice. Turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 18. John 3, verse 18. Jesus said, He who believes in him, that is in the Son of Man, Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten, the unique Son of God, the only one. He's judged because he's chosen to disbelieve. Because Jesus is the most important person in human history. He's the most important person in your life. You have to deal with Jesus Christ. Peter, in his his third discourse in the book of Acts, right after his second sermon, he was hauled into the authorities. And in front of the authorities, he said, you authorities, you're the ones who rejected Jesus Christ. You're the builders. God had allowed you to be the builders. And then he gave you the cornerstone and he said, build upon this. But you rejected him and you crucified him, but he's still God's cornerstone. It hasn't moved. And so he, he gets right in their face and he says, You need to know there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. And that is so difficult for people to accept. Are you saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. The Bible, which I believe is the word of God, says Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only way that you can find life and be reconciled to God. It is exclusive, and that is a stumbling block. But look at all the religions of the world. Aren't they all leading up to this mountaintop, which is God? Don't they prove that everyone is seeking after God? If you go back and read Romans chapter 1, it tells us that all the religions of the world prove to us is that people are rejecting God's one way. Not seeking after God. And if there were multiple pathways up the mountaintop to reach God, then Jesus Christ died needlessly. It was a needless sacrifice. If you can find God another way, but you can't. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It's just the name of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, let me encourage you. As strongly as I can, Jesus Christ is the only way. And he's, he's opening himself up to you and saying, come through me to God. All you have to do is say, God, yes, I believe Jesus is the way. I believe Jesus is the only one who can remove the debt of my sin and give to me eternal life. I believe when you call out to God and you say that to God, you have life forever with God. You can't earn that. You must receive it as a gift. Believers in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, then let him be the center of your life once again. If you have been tempted to build on other foundations, scrape them away and build on Christ. And do not be ashamed 
of Jesus Christ. And he is the one true way. And someday we will stand before him and we will see him face to face and we will get it. Now I see this is what life was all about. Oh, how I wish I had identified more fully with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is longing to be found by the world. He is not hiding himself. He longs to be found and the way that he is found is it's through us. That is why God has left the church on the earth so that we could proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why the church is here. Our our worship is completed through our witness. Look with me in chapter 2 again, verses 9 and 10. Notice what Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for God's special possession. Why? For this purpose, so that you may proclaim or announce the excellencies, that is the mighty acts of God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy so that you can proclaim Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. He is the reason you have existence. He is the purpose of your life. Declare Jesus Christ. Live for Jesus Christ. Put Christ as the absolute center of your life. If you put anything other than Christ as the center of your life, you will become like that thing, and it is less than what God has designed you to be. Remove all of those lesser loves and worship Jesus Christ. As you worship Jesus Christ, you will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. As you're transformed into the likeness of Christ, you will long to bear witness for Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we close, I want you just to allow God's spirit to search your heart. Is there anything that has crept in that has become center of your life or is competing for the center of your life other than Jesus Christ? Okay, let's take a few moments silently before the Lord and then let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that one day we will stand before you. We will see your son in all of his glory and we will realize that there, there is no one, there is no thing that is worthy of of being the center of our life other than Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that this moment, this day, we would have wisdom, that you would illuminate our imaginations, refresh our our thoughts so that we can get a glimpse into what it will be like on that day when we see that ultimate truth, that to live is Christ. Father, I pray that we would live today for that day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for not hiding yourself, but revealing yourself in him. And I pray, Father, that as we worship him, we would see our lives, our relationships transformed. And as they're transformed, we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we would long to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful and marvelous light. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's richest blessings through Jesus Christ be upon you. Amen.